Bridges Boys. We like beer. We like beer. If you think that that sounds hazy, then Lord, we'll make it clear. We like Blondells, IPAs, cider stouts, and the USA. We're just boys. We like beer. We're just boys. We like beer. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Upstate Beer Boys podcast. Steven and I, we've uh, traveled a little bit further north, back into North Carolina. So, but we're not at a brewery. You know, if you've ever wondered what goes behind uh, the, uh, the magic and science into the ingredients of what goes into your beer, this will be the episode for you. Are you excited, Stephen? I'm excited. We just got back from a tour of the whole facility. We got to learn the history, and now we're going to be able to tell y'all about it. Well, speaking of North Carolina, uh, special thanks to Chris Hitchcock for our theme song. And as always, you can catch our antics on uh, Upstate Beer Boys on Instagram. So, don't wait. Don't forget about Wayne's Beer Delivery on Instagram. Got to give you a little bit of credit. We haven't been doing that lately. And Southern Bling Beer Reviews on Instagram. Oh, Wayne's got a YouTube channel, too. Forgot about that. I was just focusing on the podcast. That's know? okay. we got to give a little jab to each other. A little jab, a little jab. So we are here, right here in Asheville, at Riverbend Malt House with Brent and Sean. Thanks so much for hosting us. Um, it is great to be here. Um, you know, not going to lie, when... I was told we were going to be interviewing a malt house. I'm like, what is a malt house? <laughs> what do they do? So, yeah, so um, same thing our wives said when we opened the uh, malt house doors uh, many moons ago. Uh, uh, myself and our co-founder, Brian Simpson, uh, and I, you know, we uh, just began with a, a desire to do something uh, super sustainable and bring locally sourced grains into the craft beer conversation, you know. Our tagline is malt with a mission, and that mission is to connect farmers to the multi-billion dollar craft beer industry uh, in North and South Carolina. So this brings a whole new dimension on drink local, support local. This is like a whole nother level here. For sure. So, you know, just to kind of put things in perspective, you know, malt is a global commodity. So when we talk about making malt, talking primarily a product that's coming from western u.s west canada western europe uh that thousands of miles potentially in a trip um, when riverbend opened as the first mall house in the southeast we were able to close that transportation loop down to uh below uh, 500 miles so uh, real impact in terms of carbon emissions uh, real impact in terms of uh, payments to local farmers and uh just, just an exciting opportunity to continue to uh, evolve craft beer. So I see a familiar face, and he's the reason that we are here and got us hooked up with Brent. So, sir, who are you, and what are you doing at our podcast? What are you doing in our interview? Well, you know, I'm such a groupie. i got to follow you guys around. I mean, you know. We're not that any, good yet. Any, well, you're not wrong. No, just kidding. Uh, so, Thanks yeah, for being with us. Absolutely. Uh, I love the show. I love what you guys are doing, right? So uh, Sean Wagner, yes, of Plank Owner Brewing down in Spartanburg, but um, 
I've also been part of the Riverbend team now for almost three months, uh, but partnered with these guys for well over four years. So we, we first opened the brewery back in 2019. The first bag of malt we ever ran through our brew system had Riverbend's logo on it. Uh, in fact, you probably saw it when you were at the brewery that that bag is hanging on the production wall over by the walk-in cooler. Mm-hmm. So we've just been um, you know, loving the product, the quality uh, for the last several years. Uh, the customer service and support second to none. So uh, had an opportunity to join the team and uh, came on about three months ago and uh, running sales for North and South Carolina. Good deal. So you were so happy with the product that you wanted to come on as a, a insert, team member. Insert hair club for men joke now. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. At first, when when Sean, uh, you know, uh, expressed interest, I was like, well, this could go wrong in so many ways. Like we could lose a customer and an employee if things don't go well. Uh, so. But you know, when he when we continued talking, I was like, no, actually, this might be fantastic. So let, let's give it a whirl. And uh, he's been off to a roaring start. So we're we're stoked to have him on board. So I've never been involved in a malt house, but just my thinking, if you have a brewer, especially a part owner of a brewer, a brewery, and he brews the beer, he knows what has to go in to brew the beer. He can go into one of your potential customers, and this is just my thinking. And say, hey, this is what I use. Why don't you try it out and see how it works? And it can come straight from him instead of from you as the owner. Well, and that's that's been part of the conversation as well as people, you know, as Brent has either introduced me, introduced me to existing customers or I'm out meeting new ones. Uh, them finding out that I'm a brewer and been using the malt for the last four years has been a huge asset because it lets me have a different level of conversation with our customers, especially the brewers, um, you know, whether it's coming up with a new recipe or how to take their existing recipe and convert it over to Riverbend malts. So it's, I, I think it's been a huge asset, uh, you know, supporting our customers. Yeah, you're on their level. You know what they need. You know what Riverbend can supply and you can assist them with getting what they need to make their product even better. Right, exactly. Yeah. For sure. One of, one of my uh, interview questions I always ask of our sales folks is like, tell me how you're going to get over the who the hell is this guy face that you get from a potential cold call, you know, and uh, having a brewing background is a huge step forward in jumping over that initial hurdle. All right. Well, you know, this definitely is an interesting place. Uh, Brent, if you could just take a minute or two and just uh, give us a little cliff notes of the history of how you, you came about to uh, open the uh, malt house and just uh, little stories behind that. Oh yeah, for sure. So uh, myself and Brian Simpson, uh, you know, opened this place uh, back in 2010. Um, we were both environmental consultants before then, working in the coast of North Carolina. Um, housing market collapsed, we went looking for uh, a second act and uh, moved our families up here. Brian's an avid trail runner. I'm into fly fishing and mountain biking. So just wanted to get up here. Um, quickly found out it's a bring your own job economy. So we needed to come up with something. Um, strong sustainability background uh, together. We've run a biodiesel cooperative. And uh, we just said, you know, we didn't want to be the 13th brewery in the area. But what about if we did a, a, a malt house? You know, kind of follow the Levi Strauss model. Make the jeans for the miners kind of thing. And... Uh, 
So we opened up the uh, malt house in 2010, made our first batch in 2011, um, quickly uh, had some one-offs and seasonals, had a successful release with New Belgium that kind of helped put us on the map. Um, moved into malt house 2.0, which was a four-ton facility in 2014. Uh, from there, the business grew, brought on a CEO in 2017 to help us raise money and grow uh, into 3.0, uh, which is now a 70,000 square foot facility uh, producing between four and five million tons of malt a year. This is the basics of malt. So, uh, so, so, so when we talk about malting and the basics of the process, um, to define malting is the process of managing the enzymatic digestion inside of each kernel as each cell wall is uh, broken down into a starch or simple sugar. So the process is the same regardless if you're a small-scale craft monster like us or a larger uh, entity like RAR. RAR does 500-ton batches. We do multiple 10-ton batches. But the process is identical. Steeping, germinating, and kilning all executed across a seven-day period. Steeping uh, involves uh, the raw grain being put through a series of wet-dry cycles to raise the moisture content to 45%. At that point, the grain, if healthy, should be actively germinating, and at that point, it'll be transferred into either uh, a germination vessel, or in our case, a floor or a germination vessel. Um, that process is really, that part of the process is where the Malser's art takes to, uh, starts to take hold. This is where we can determine whether that barley is going to become a Pilsner-based product, so that will be slightly under-modified, or a Munich-style product, slightly over-modified. So that could be the difference between three days and five days. From there, we're going to transfer into the kilning stage, 24 hours in duration, three main steps, free-dry, coarse-dry, and curing. Temperatures range from 120 to 220 Fahrenheit. And the maltster can make a lot of decisions about airflow recirculation, when to apply heat, when to not apply heat, and the duration of each of those steps to make a wide portfolio of different products. So um, it, it's a really fun intersection of art and science. So while we were outside, and you were just now bringing up sustainability. So we were outside earlier, and you were going through the process of how y'all do from beginning to end. And... It was really neat because you said y'all have no waste. So I, I thought that was really cool and Wayne and I were talking about it and Sean pointed it out. So let's talk a little bit about that, about what you do with the roots mm -hmm. that you were talking about, the, the, the small little kernels that were left over. For sure. Yeah, so um, at the end of the malting process, you've got uh, rootlet material that needs to be removed from the kernel. The rootlets have sprouted during germination and then have been excessively cooked during kilning, and so they need to be removed uh, before they get to the brew house. And uh, this is a substantial amount of material that could find its way to the landfills in our area. Um, but it's a really high protein, low moisture feedstock that um, our local animal operations can uh, mix in with other feed sources. So we've got uh, small scale uh, pasture raised uh, grain operations that use the rootlet material as a feed additive to help um, grow their uh, animals. And uh, 
we're going to have a cookout tomorrow night with burgers that were raised on uh, rootlet material. So we're pretty pumped about that. And um, but yeah, that that's a big step forward. You know, that's um, close to 140,000 pounds of material that was diverted from the landfill last year and into a cow's belly. So uh, really proud of that initiative. So we're on while we're on that sustainability, we were talking about the bags. Mm-hmm. So. What do you do with your bags, and what made you come up with the process of your bag recycling? Yeah, so this is another great project uh, that we're, we're proud of. Uh, so there's actually a cooperative group uh, spearheaded by Sierra Nevada here in Western NC that's designed to sort of corral all of what they call polywoven material. That is, that's an industry name for the uh, material that makes up the plastic bags that the malt goes into. And so there's a system in place now or a a facility that uh, can recycle this material close by. And so we're we're developed an in-house methodology to um, uh, compact our uh, root our um, 50-pound bags and one-ton super sacks to make them more easily transferable over to this facility. So we've got. on pace to do about 20,000 pounds of polywoven material at the recycling center this year. All right. Um, I'm probably going to take this uh, conversation a step backwards. You know, we're talking about the, the end and the sustainability. Um, so where do you get the grains to make the malt? And I know we talked earlier about you locally sourced. How has the impact been uh, of Riverbend in the area as far as like for local farmers? Uh, you know, I like to think we've had a, a positive impact. You know, a lot of folks, have, have, you know, their first uh, initial reaction to our growth is like, oh, well, to be sure you can't get all that grain local anymore. And then I have to paint the picture for them that we have over half a million acres of small grains just in North Carolina alone. So uh, that's actually our, our least uh, constraining issue. Um, there's actually some infrastructure issues that hold us back more than anything. We've got the grain in the land uh, with no problem. But everything we source is from the southeast, um, with the exception of a few contract projects in which uh, people bring grain to us from out of network. Um, so everything's from local farms in the southeast. And um, it's a really great thing because we work with winter barley so that grows from October to June, which it doesn't means that we're not in competition for corn and soybean acreage during the prime summer months. And so what ends up happening is the grower network that we work with benefits from a ne- an extra paycheck by growing high quality small grains for us in the off season. There's an environmental benefit there as well because this material is serving as a cover crop so we're reducing erosion and we're improving soil nutrient retention during this off season. So there's a lot of benefits from sourcing local. So I've, I learned a lot today just by walking through and looking at your grains and just the different from growing to final product. So where did the name Riverbend come from how did you develop what was the thought process of having that name so 
the name Riverbend is kind of meant to evoke, you know, first off, a lot of the agricultural productive, the agriculturally productive areas are on the floodplain right next to the river in this part of the world. Um, the bend aspect is really just, you know, a, a different trajectory for sourcing in our area uh, when we talk about craft beer. You know, when we first started as, uh, in the South, there were no other malt houses and everyone was sourcing grain from hundreds if not thousands of miles away to make local beer and we wanted to sort of bend that trajectory towards something that was more true to brand and uh, I, I think we've largely been successful in that and I'm, I'm super proud of, of what we've accomplished over the last 12 years. Absolutely, definitely. Uh, seemed like you're growing, especially when you started in a little bitty Seven thousand or ten thousand? No, no, one what, two thousand square foot. Two thousand square foot yep. facility. Then you went to ten thousand, and then you went to seventy. Yes, I do not recommend that level of jump for anyone, but that's what we did. And I thought it was kind of funny as we were walking towards here. You said, you know, we were looking when we got the building built and got it all like the seventy thousand square foot. You said, there's no way that we're ever going to be able to fill this and. It's filled. It's filled. Yeah, I, I, I laughed out loud the first time they opened the door to this place. I was like, no way. We don't need this. And, uh, you know, but here we are five years later, and it's, it's you know, from a footprint standpoint, we're, we've filled it up. And uh, it's definitely not at capacity from a production standpoint by any means, but it, it's there's a lot of material in the building, you know. It, it's uh, pretty wild. So we got like over 600,000 pounds of, of malt sitting on the floor right now, so, ready to go. So, kind of so. like if you build it, they will buy. <laughs> they will yeah. buy, yes. Wayne, you got, I had a really good question that just popped in my head. So when we walked in the door this morning, you welcomed us right in, didn't know who we were, we introduced ourselves, and you were working on a little process. I called you a mad scientist. <laughs> so tell the listeners what exactly you were doing and why you were doing it yeah so um i was hanging out in, in our lab and uh we do a lot with the hot steep method uh and for the listeners who may not know the hot steep method is basically uh making a malt tea in that is uh, a similar uh strength consistency that mirrors what a brewer would create in uh in their uh professional system and so what that allows us to do is a establish a sort of uh, true to brand analysis for every batch that goes out the door but from an R&D level it allows us to sort of play around with flavor matching and so in this uh, one respect we have uh, a customer who uses a, a base malt um, from overseas and they said you know we really love you guys and we want to support you but we have this flagship product and we're not, we're very hesitant to deviate. Can you come up with something that makes us feel at home and comes closer to matching the flavor? I said, okay, let me go to work and see. So what I was doing when y'all walked in was sort of mixing and matching different concentrations of different products that we make, trying to flavor match this overseas base mold. And then you actually gave us a sample and let us try the different. Yep. So one had like a sweet cookie and one was more bready. Exactly. So, and that's where kind of the nuance goes down to. And, and so while I'm not ready to tell you that I can tell the difference between the same barley variety grown on two different farms, which would be you know true, a more traditional definition of terroir, 
what I will tell you is that barley varieties matter when it comes to flavor. And so uh, several of our flagship products blend barley varieties for flavor. Um, so meaning that they're co-mingled from the start of the batch. Um, and so the trick is, though, is that each of those barley varieties presents a certain flavor note in the finished product. And, and when we go to QAQC, a given batch of, say, Base Camp or Southern Select, I'm looking for each of those notes to sort of hit the ping, you know, as if they were in a, in a symphony together. And so, you know, it gets trickier when I'm trying to match somebody, something someone else has done, you know. Um, still can be done, just a different uh, sort of headspace to get into when it comes to, to matching. But certain varieties we work with throw a very interesting, you know, sort of wildflower, honeysuckle, floral character. Others deliver a more rich, bready, sugar cookie note. And the, the trick is, how do they present if it's a 2SRM Pilsner, a 3SRM Pale Ale, or a 4 to a 5SRM Vienna? So they all react differently as you get a little bit darker on the spectrum. And so up to uh, our team to sort of have that working knowledge in-house so that we get consistent base malt products, but also can do some of these more challenging sort of flavor match projects as well. So you have quite a bit of different varieties of malt. how do you innovate and come up with different styles or different ones? Um, is it by style of beer or is it just uh, more of your mad scientist skills creating stuff or, you know, you know what's we, that process like? We've got a lot of levers to pull in, in the malt house. Uh, you, you know, uh, we, we've gotten, you know, some brewers poking fun at us lately as we continue to release uh, more and more different varieties of Pilsner malts. Um, but they all have distinct differences. It, it may be uh, isolate a single variety, like our Cumberland Pilsner, which is 100% Calypso barley, um, or it might be more process-driven, like our, Chess, uh, our uh, uh, Czech Pilsner, which is really designed as a throwback Pilsner malt, meaning it's truly under-modified, and we accomplish that by changing germination, Conditions. We accomplish that by changing kilning conditions. And so I'm taking the same barley varieties and I'm mixing and matching different process tweaks along the way. Um, so that's, that's part of the main story there. And then, you know, um, it, and then when we come to making darker malts, the challenge is how do we get a consistent dark malt out there? You know, it's, it's, really tough to deliver uh, something right at a single SRM if you're in say uh, above 30 you know when it gets more like red brown color that's very challenging to do and so we're looking for ways in which we can sort of make that more uniform but still interesting and flavorful all right Sean I got a question for you okay I got one next for Sean so (laughs) oh boy what's your question no go ahead okay well Maybe this is a point where the no script may bite us in the butt later. Um, put your brewer's hat on. So uh, when you're coming up with a, a recipe, you, you've got a, a style on your mind, how do you select the malts for it? Let's say if I was throughout a, um, 
Um, let's say you want to come out with another uh, innovative, uh, well, kind of like your your brown ale that was. That's not a brown ale. It's not a brown ale. That's actually. You really should call it a Mexican brown ale. That was, <laughs> I, think, I, think we're, I think we're slowly settling on Mexican Kolsch. Okay. Okay. So a little, little, little unique. But to, to answer your initial question, what we typically do is figure out like what style we want to do next, right? So we want to say, okay, we're going to do, say it's another New England or you know hazy IPA we want to make. So what flavor profile do we want out of that? And mm-hmm. then we kind of work backwards like any you know, any chef or, you know, cook would, right? We're basically going to take a look at our ingredients. In this case, what do we have to work with? It's barley, it's our hops, and the yeast. Mm-hmm. All of them are going to impart flavor into the final product. So when we're picking our malts, and that's where the base is coming in, we're looking at the flavor profiles, right? So like Brent said, here at Riverbend, we've got four different Pilsner styles of malt. We've got a six-row variety, we've got a Chesapeake Pils, we've got Cumberland Pils, and we've got our... Um, uh, check pills. So um, each one has a unique flavor profile. So what we would do is we would take a look at those and say, okay, for this recipe, the flavor we want out of it might be maybe a little sweeter, a little lighter. Maybe I want to go with this particular malt over this one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then the rest is just you know what what flavor characteristics we're going to add. Are we eat some mouthfeel, some haze. Great. You know, we'll have our you know hollow notes in there, our malted oats product. Um, you know, when we're when we're creating different ones, like our our Marzen, right? It's you know 100%. You know, Rubin as well. It's a mix of some of our our Munich malts, uh, the Vienna, you know, the base. So it's just figuring out the flavor profiles. But you know, in all of our product catalog and all of our product sheets here, we've got flavor profiles. Uh, but this also goes back to something that uh, Brent touched on earlier in the conversation. That's creating a malt tea or the hot tea where it allows you to really get a flavor. And we've done that in the past where Brent's come down and done sensory training for the entire staff at the brewery where we've done not only the back of the house, you know, the production guys, but also the front of the house. And it helps them understand more about the process and makes them uh, you know, have a better understanding and can talk a little more intelligently to our customers' brewery, so. So we talked about Sean as a brewer and an owner so let's talk about Sean as a salesman when you or when we were getting our equipment together Wayne and I kind of got stopped when we were looking at this set of bins by the mad scientist uh, office and you came over and started talking about the bins and what were in the bins so what were in the bins that you showed us and what are the purpose for what's in the bins what do you do with all that so with the sales hat on obviously our job is to go talk to you know our existing customers about some new products right so like hickory king corn is a new one we just got out um so while i'm out visiting our existing customers we want to make sure they're aware of the new products the new things we come out with so um avalon pale malt's another one so we've got some new products so we want to make sure our existing you know breweries and distilling customers understand what new products we have so that they, you know, can think of new new ways to use them, right? Um, but if we're going into a, an account that may not be using our, our, you know, products today, we want to give them a sample. So what those were, those were little sample bags, and they're just these little brown envelope bags with samples of each of the, in the variety of malts. And we put together full sample bags, or we'll just drop off, you know, individual bags to customers, depending on, you know, the conversation and what they're looking for. 
that's what that was. That's just basically part of our, 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 our sales tools, things that we can you know extend and, and provide to our customers out there. Yeah, we typically, you know, we like to have about, I think we're about 14 SKUs right now. And so it, it's this interesting mix of like, you need rock solid base malts like Basecamp and Southern Select that are sort of tried and true that brewers can hang their hat on. But then you also have to have something new and shiny every time you walk in the door. And so that that's kind of what we're, I mean, we know where craft beer is. It's still Rotation Nation. Most of our customers are going to be looking for a new ingredient, be it a hop, be it a malt that goes into a beer. You know, they're releasing one, two, maybe more beers per week. And so we got to keep ahead of the curve. You know, that's what the customer expects. They want, they want a new beer every time they walk in the door to try at least. They may go back to their Mexican Kolsch every every visit, but they're going to ask Sean what's new. Right, and we also have a variety of, of smoke products we do as well. You know, we, we realize that's not everybody's forte is to put out smoked beers, but we do have some fun with it. And it's it's actually very appealing for our distilling customers, but a lot of breweries who want to put out, you know, smoked beers different times of the year, we've, we've got yeah. the option of doing that as well. We can do 500 pounds at a time through our, our smoker. Uh, I think the current one we've got right now is a, a white wine barrel uh, Pilsner uh, that's out. And cherry. So, oh, and then cherry as well. So. More opportunities to uh, be creative out there. So huge so. history lesson today. <laughs> so yeah, you have you know a variety of malts for your your breweries. Uh, what do you have to offer for distillers, and what can they make out of it? So the distilling market has been an interesting one for us because we we don't have a straight ahead distillers malt. Uh, from what the researchers have told us that. We need a higher protein barley to produce that sort of superstar diastatic power of 300 and, you know, stratospheric alpha amylase levels. You know, what we found is that brewers or distillers are, in some cases, looking for a lot of what the brewers are. They're, they're flavor driven. You know, they, they've got, maybe they've got a bourbon that's, you know, their tried and true recipe, but they want something special that's going into uh you know, uh, maybe they found a Madeira cask or something like that, and so they're going to mm-hmm. do a special recipe that really is going to go straight into that barrel. Um, so we've had, uh, and also the rise of uh, the American single malt movement. We're starting to get some really interesting uh, hits uh, from that side of things. You know, American single malt, as the name implies, is, is malt, 100% malted barley. And so at that point, we're not constrained by alpha amylase levels and diastatic. We can, we can talk about flavor. We can talk about, you know, what does a malt whiskey taste like that's, you know, 30% Pilsner, 30% Vienna, and 30% Light Munich, you know? The answer is probably pretty amazing. We, we're going to have to be patient and wait several years, but bringing a more diverse flavor profile to the beginning mash is undoubtedly going to improve the whiskey down the line. Well, I am completely out of questions. Sitting here trying to think of something. You, you know, wait, you're you know, speechless. Yeah, I felt like I was on an episode of like uh, one of those science programs. <laughs> um, and some of the the machinery that you have, like the steeping vessel, kind of looked like a almost like a fermentation kettle. And uh, the yeah. the big ones look like a big giant. Uh, well, I guess the brew vessel. Yeah, definitely a lot of a, a lot of similarities. You know, when we talk about the kiln, it's a, 
uh, stainless steel slotted bottom that uh, allows, in our case, we deal in air, uh, but a brewer in a mash tun would be dealing in water. Um, so very similar geometry, uh, very similar uh, mechanics involved. Like I say, just more dealing with air than dealing with uh, liquids moving through the pipes. It even had the same type clean out that we had to shovel by yeah, hand, the, the grain. If we had to shovel those containers, we'd be there for days. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, thank God for uh, augers uh, that are helping us out here. We use a, a, a mix of augers and vacuum systems to empty everything out. So that, that's a huge help. So you were saying earlier that that's keeping you from having to put anybody down in a confined space area and just doing it with the augers. So yep, exactly. That was a, a safety big, feature. Yep, that was a big step forward with uh, the third, uh, we call them GKVs, germ kiln vessels. Um, it was a big safety feature with number three and number four is that they included a horizontal auger that unloads the material without having a, a man or woman inside sort of uh, shepherding the vacuum system along. Very informational, very interesting for sure. Um, all right, so you're here in North Carolina. You like to support local. What is the customer that you have that might be the furthest away from Asheville here? Hmm. Well, hard to say because we a lot of our customers here in the southeast will collaborate with a lot of folks um, outside of market. So, um, you know, folks from... So folks from, uh, you know, Burial, Fontaflora, or whatnot might pull us into a collaboration in Colorado or California. So our, our malt has definitely made it uh, to the Northeast, uh, you know, every major region uh, of America. Um, so it, it's uh, pretty far flown. We even got some material uh, going over into Puerto Rico. So it, it, it's been some entertaining conversations about where people would like to see our product. Yeah, in fact, we've got a... a brewery out of New York who's going to be collaborating with the brewery out of Puerto Rico and they're going to be looking to buy some material from us uh, for that collab. I've already heard that there's going to be a field trip. Right? Exactly. <laughs> we got to go to the islands, right? Yeah, sales right. trip. Everybody put on their floral shirts. Let's go. <laughs> so roughly how many, and we talked about it earlier, roughly how many customers do you have that are currently buying Riverbend malt syrup? I think we're about 300 right now uh, spread across the southeast um, so that feels pretty good you, you know in the in the early days you know most of our stuff didn't leave western north carolina and so it's uh it's been fun you know to to uh, i covered charleston for a while uh, we've got a sales rep named tyler who covers georgia alabama and florida for us and so it's been great to see local malt stretch into this region and really, you know, stand on its own two feet against uh, global competitors. No pressure, Sean. Right. That's all right. Since no, you're, we're, we're, you're doing, we're, doing, we're doing good in South Carolina, and, and North Carolina continues to grow. So, well, Like I said, I, I feel like you have a step above a lot of salesmen in the grain industry and malt. So. Well, you know, we've got a very talented team you know, and, and Tyler, who's my counterpart, Florida, Georgia, Alabama there, he's got a different background, but I definitely feel I bring a lot uh, to the team with the brewing background um, and having been in the industry for about seven years. 
exactly. and still in the industry. And still instead. in the industry. Yeah. Right. So it helps out. So you see both sides of the need as a brewer, co-owner of a brewery, and as a salesman. Yeah, off to a, uh, off to a roaring start. We're excited to see what Sean can put together for us. Uh, I no heard a, no pressure, but I heard Sean had a nice little trip uh, to the Outer Banks and actually ran into a brewery with a kind of similar theme to his, but just a little bit different. Not a pirate ship, but there there's was there's was <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I guess it's okay if we name some names here, sure, right? Give them a little love. Uh, yeah, so I I. Uh, Got a chance to get out to eastern North Carolina, uh, out through Rocky Mount, which has got an amazing uh, brewing incubator system. Uh, lots of breweries are either going there to expand their capacity or getting their start before they get their own brick and mortar space. It's an awesome facility. A lot of great little breweries uh, going through there, great resources. Uh, from there, went down, visited everybody through the Outer Banks, uh, you know, a couple of distilleries. But on all places, Ocracoke Island, um, which requires a ferry ride to get to uh, from Hatteras, is a brewery down there that's producing some just absolutely amazing beer. It's been a, a, a very good customer, uh, 1718 Brewing. So, um, as you guys know, I'm big in my pirate history. Yep. Uh, so I'm writing it down so and, I can remember it. And while there is a brewery in Spartanburg that is not a pirate ship, <laughs> Uh, but there's a beer called Not a Pirate Ship. There is a beer called Not a Pirate Ship. At your brewery. There is. I wonder who we did that with. <laughs> Made uh, with Riverbend Malt. It is. Yep. It is. Uh, but no, 1718 Brewing on Ocracoke, um, they've got, uh, their their logo is basically a play on Blackbeard's uh, logo from Blackbeard, Edward Teach's flag. And uh, their, their whole theme is around that vibe. In fact, 1718 itself is the year that Blackbeard was killed and beheaded. Um, there in the harbor so but yeah great brewery um on ocracoke everything has to come on uh, a boat to get to the island so and they're they're producing some some great beer over there in i'm, fact, I'm I, taking I, notes <laughs> that's fine in fact i uh, actually brought some beer with me today from 1718 so after the uh, podcast we uh can have a little awesome let's hurry up meeting the podcast so we can go try some beer wayne <laughs> Can't wait to see if a uh, plank owner and seventeen eighteen to get together and see what kind of collaboration they come up with if that happens down the road. <sighs> you know, um, I'm trying to think if I have any more questions. I, I probably will think about five of them after we get done recording. Stephen, you got anything? I say we open it up to Sean and Brent and see if they have anything upcoming that we didn't talk about or that they want to talk about before we throw it back to listen to some good music. Well, one of the things I'd like to bring up is something we just did last week um, at CBC in Nashville, and I'll let Brent kind of run with it, but just to kind of tee this up for him, is uh, Riverbend sponsored and held at Harding House the first ever Southern Lager Invitational. So uh, that was a a great project, had some great, great beers there. So, Brent? Yeah, super fun there. We we partnered with uh, our friends at Bootleg Biology and and the good people at Harding House um, to pull this together. Uh, Invited friends of ours from throughout the Southeast um, to sort of uh, showcase uh, a variety of styles uh, within the lager genre. Um, And it it was just a a really beautiful event. Um, A lot of like-minded people in the room, uh, a lot of beautiful beer on draft, and just really exciting to see you know when we first envisioned 
what Riverbend could could do or hopefully be a part of, we kind of looked around at the craft beer space and we said, well, the, we've got Pacific, we've got the Pacific Northwest guys holding it down with Black IPA. We have, you know, the classic West Coast IPA and, and you know, right about the time we were starting, it was the first inklings around Hazy IPA. And so we, we said, well, what is the South going to be known for? Like, what are we going to do? Um, and at the time, like making ma- even thing anything in the ballpark of a macro lager would have been complete heresy, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't really thinking in that space. I was thinking maybe it would be, you know, a farmhouse beer with with funky adjuncts like candy roaster squash or something like that. But <laughs> that's funky, <laughs> right? Right? I, 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 we've got ideas. And uh, but anyway, so flash forward here, and it's like, well, no. Well, what happens if we make a traditional Keller Pills with yeast that's been uh, c- captured and cultured from Virginia and barley that grew in Virginia too and malted by a small-scale crap maltster. Everything uh, is true to style in terms of process, but the ingredient choice is the differentiator. And mm-hmm. so what, what happens there? Well, it turns out you still end up with a world-class uh, version of the style. It just doesn't taste exactly like it came from Germany. And so, you know, for those folks that are open to explore that space, that's what this event was all about. I knew I should have called out to work Monday and gone. <laughs> oh, I know. I hate that we didn't go since we got an invite. All right. So where do you see the future of Riverbend Malt going uh, in the short and long term? So we've got a lot of great opportunities. Um, I'm really excited about where our staff is at right now. I mean, the, the, the folks we've got right now are just absolutely crushing it on a day-to-day basis. So consistency and quality are, are at an all-time high. So I, I see that continuing. Um, you know, we've got some exciting new things coming down the pipeline. Uh, Avalon Pale was mentioned. And, and just to give a real brief story on that, so that's really the first southern born and bred variety that we've had access to from our friends at Virginia Tech. Um, this was literally uh, the, the product of a conversation that we had over a decade ago with them. They said, what, what can we do to help craft malt grow? And we said, well, we need a two-row barley. We were, at the time... We were working with exclusively a six-row variety, which is not really the the brewer's choice, shall we say. And so we said, I'd, I'd like a, a nice, plump two-row variety that grows well for our farmers and delivers excellent quality or excellent flavor uh, for our brewers. And uh, he said, great, give me 10 years, Brent. I said, okay, <laughs> all right, fair enough. And um, But we're at that moment now, and uh, so we had... Uh, about a truckload of Avalon to work with from 2022. We're going to have far more than that to work with in 2023. Um, very excited about that. Um, I think that's going to just continue to evolve what it means to make craft malt in the southeast and define the southeast relative to the rest of the nation in that space. Um, so really looking forward to that and. Uh, you know, this time of year, man, we've got our fingers crossed. Um, the grain is nearing maturity. This is a crucial time for weather conditions. If we get a couple of inches of rain at, within a couple of days, crop quality could really take a beating. So I'm just really crossing my fingers that between now and the end of the month that we have nice sunny conditions to take us to a beautiful harvest. 
How's the other one on the sales front, Sean? What you got? Oh, it's been great. Um, in the future here? Just, I'm, I'm enjoying getting out. I'm, getting, I'm enjoying, um, you know, getting in front of customers and seeing all the creativity and the, and the different things that are coming out and using our products. So it's, it's great. Um, I'm absolutely enjoying it. So. Well, I'm ready to drink some beer. I'm always, I'm always ready to drink beer. Then, go, then ride over downtown Asheville and maybe see if we can find a brewery to drink a beer there before we have to head back home. I think if you look hard, you might be able to find one here in Asheville. Is there Just any one or breweries? Two? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Brent, any yes. final final words? Uh yeah, no, just thanks for having us. If y'all are interested in what you're hearing, you can find more information at uh, riverbendmalt.com and uh, on the socials, uh, our handle is riverbendmalt. And uh, we appreciate the follow and uh, love to have you guys in, in, the, uh, in the tribe. We appreciate you having us here. Appreciate the tour, all the knowledge. Uh, man, just the, you know, I thought brewing beer was a, a, a process that was uh, pretty intricate itself it seems like it's almost a more intricate process just to get the malt to make the beer uh, absolutely so the next time you drink a beer made with riverbend malt think about you know how long it took to get there so that the barley research that took 10 years the barley that was planted in october harvested in june malted in september when uh, dormancy breaks so you're, you're talking about an arc that at the very best is almost a 12 month arc. Um, so it, it, it really matters, um, you know, what goes into the process to uh, deliver top quality material uh, to these breweries in the Southeast. And ask for Riverbend Malt at your local brewery. So when we go to Asheville, what's, what brewery can we go to that we can definitely have a Riverbend Malt beer? I'm proud to say that just about every malt house, or every brewery in town has got a Riverbend handle, if not uh, several. Yeah, um, this, this is our home market, so. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you can have uh, 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 IPA at Asheville Pizza and Brewing. You can have uh, just about everything in the mixed culture space at, at Burial is run on Riverbend. That's where we're um, going to go next. <laughs> Twin Leaf uh, is doing some beautiful things with our malt, making some traditional English beers, making some uh, real, his thing is uh, Gozes. Um, so if you're into those, stop in there. Um, Archetype, Dissolver, One World. Um, the list goes on. Um, just some really beautiful things happening here in town, and uh, we appreciate all the local support. So, folks, if you, to our listeners, if you ever find yourself in Asheville and you go to one of those breweries that he's talking about, while you're drinking your beer, like he said, just look at it and think back on our conversation, and it'll give you a little bit more of a, a history lesson as you're drinking the beer. And high-five the bartender and tell him thanks for supporting local. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me up. <laughs> thank you for allowing us to come up here and take y'all's time and <laughs> take Sean's time away from his uh, very important job. Selling malt. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'd like to thank our show sponsors. We've got promotion graphics for on-site banner. We're at festivals and other places uh we'd like to thank uh john sharkey and the greenville craft beer fest coming up uh, i think it's in october this year it's october so. 
So it's, it's so come see us coming around the corner. And then uh, Eddie Winningham and the Clock Tower Tap Room and Billiards in Simpsonville, South Carolina, are home when we're not at home. And with that, we'll kick it over to Chris. We'll see you next time. This is Eddie Whittingham with Clock Tower Taproom and Billiards, and you've been listening to the Upstate Beer Boys podcast.